You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. Welcome back, Martin. 2022, here we are, HEDEX again. Well, isn't it exciting to be back in the studio, Carl? It's... um bit like Groundhog Day in some respects, but it also feels like a time for really new starts for me. Um, a different state of the world, um, time to get on with it, I think, and a time to recognise we're in new positions, but with brand new um, fields in front of us and an opportunity to approach the year in a very different and dynamic and innovative way. Yes, indeed. This year is a very different one. I'm certainly getting a different vibe from uh, outside of sector. Uh, last year seemed to be, I think, what we refer to as motion, where people were in planning and strategy mode for maybe a prolonged or extended period of time. And I'm seeing things move very quickly. You know, often people don't come back to work in the corporate sector until Jan after Australia Day. Uh, we've already been back for two weeks and... Um, you know, we've hit the ground running. Well, we have, but um, I can't get over the fact that what people normally do is sort of being turned on its head a little bit and how people in different parts of Australia, different parts of this this hemisphere and different parts of the world are in a different position. I mean, you reflected on an event in Queensland and its conditions. Uh, just about anything that's happening in different states of Australia has all been subject to different circumstances for so long now. Um, and our, our first guest for this year is another guest from New Zealand, where they've been on a similar journey for us for so long, but they're in a quite different situation than, than um, us right at this point of time. And we, we had our first vice chancellor from um, Northern Europe last year, from the UK. They're again in a very different um, situation than, than we are in Australia. That being the case, Martin, how is that manifesting? What, what are you noticing and recognising across different states? Well, it's been really good to, for instance, see how that's played out with um, colleagues in Queensland over the last week or two, Carl. It's been just over a week or so now that our international students have been allowed into the state again without quarantine. I think New South Wales and Victoria have been there a little bit longer than Queensland. Um, I don't think New Zealand are letting many people in of any um, type into their economy and borders at the moment. And hearing one of our early guests and and now a, a further... Um, acting Vice-Chancellor position in WA in Jane Den Hollander. Um, talk about the challenge that Western Australia is going to face when the rest of Australia is now open to international students, but Western Australia is going to be close to them for yet another unknown period into the future. It's, it's very difficult to project yourself to long-term markets for international students with long lead times, lots of insecurity against the competition of a world that's in a much different state for us when we have so much variability and uncertainty in our circumstances. So I think just sitting there and hoping for things to get better rather than making them better through deliberate actions is um, a strong metaphor for where people need to be seeing their priorities coming into the start of 2022. And from one side of the continent to across the ditch, I think you've got a, you've mentioned Jan Thomas from Massey this week. Yeah, it was great to talk with Jan, actually. She's a former Vice-Chancellor from the University of Southern Queensland here in Australia, and she's been just over a couple of years now heading up um, one of New Zealand's leading universities and has just taken the reins of 
the, um, the group of eight over there, universities of universities New Zealand. And she had some very interesting things to say about the slow starts that they're all making back to some revenue recovery with international student returns. But the long haul, really, for universities, if they are going to be a beacon of hope for the future, of being relevant to new futures. And we'll hear from Professor Jan Thomas from Massey just after the break. While the global pandemic has forced the education sector to shift online, OES have been delivering high-quality online education services for over a decade. Having built thousands of online units and supported over 50,000 students, OES partners with universities across areas including learning design, learning analytics, simulations, student support, and more. Discover how OES can help support your institution's digital strategy. Visit oes.edu.au. Today's guest on HEDEX is Professor Jan Thomas. Jan has been the Vice-Chancellor at Massey University in New Zealand for around five years now and took up the role of the ch- as the chair of its peak body, Universities New Zealand, in about in 2021. She was formerly Vice-Chancellor at the University of Southern Queensland for five years and has chaired both the Australian Regional Universities Network and the Association of Commonwealth Universities, together with holding senior appointments around the world, including in Hong Kong. So a truly balanced experience from two sides of the ditch and with regards to the role of universities in both local communities, but also on the world stage. Jan, welcome to HEDEX. Hi, kia ora, Martin. Lovely to be here. Jan, you lead one of um, New Zealand's leading universities after a roughly equal time, having also led, as I said in that introduction, one of what I I consider to be Australia's oldest regional universities. You'll, You'll maybe correct me on the precision of that. Where, where do you sense those two universities and the two systems that they're part of are up to at this point of time as, as we start 2022? And how would you compare the universities and the, the systems that they're part of? Uh, I think the systems um, are very different, um, surprisingly different coming from Australia to New Zealand. Um, I was uh, probably a bit naive to the differences actually. Uh, In terms of USQ and Massey, um, I think they're both wonderful organisations and but both also quite different. The area that they have in common is, of course, their um, provision of online learning and being, um, you know, uh, some of the earlier adopters and leaders in online learning. And of, of course, with this changing world that we find ourselves in that positions, universities like these, very well to continue um, to educate students wherever they are. So um, the institutions are different in uh, many ways, but the sector uh, sector is quite different as well. Just a couple of highlight highlights uh, for that difference. Um, I think the sector in Australia is quite uh, diverse, um, and there's a big range of styles of universities, whereas. In New Zealand, all eight universities are regulated under the same Education Act, and they all have specific obligations under that Act in common. And so what you have is eight universities who are very highly ranked, that are research-led, and um, that have particular responsibilities, legal responsibilities, around being critic and conscience of society. So um, there tends to be a lot more similarities than differences within the New Zealand sector. That being said, and within that framework, um, there are differences. My own institution, for example, um, has been in um, distance and now online learning for, um, you know, 
60 years. So that is not the case for other New Zealand universities. So there are significant differences and we do also tap into different uh, demographics for um, our student body. In Massey's case, uh, many of our students are mature age, part-time, often second chance learners or first in family learners. And that may not be the case for the demographics for other universities in New Zealand. So there is some significant difference. I think the sector here is also uh, quite tightly um, regulated and we have a tertiary education commission overseeing the universities and sitting between the universities and the government. And I also would add that unlike Australia, the universities here are not um, self-accrediting as individual institutions. So as you know, in Australia, the institutions are self-accrediting. Here, um, they are not as individual institutions. So there are some significant differences in the sector, but at the end of the day, both countries have got world-class um, universities that can match the best on the global stage. So um, there's some similarity in that sense as well. And um, thanks for that insight into what many of our listeners might not understand of the difference between those systems. And, and you've got now, as I said in the introduction, the um, responsibility of leading all eight of those universities in the universities New Zealand organisation around advocacy and, and sector leadership. And at this crucially important time for the history of, of universities around the world, I wonder if you can help us understand what the greatest advocacy and sector leadership issues that you're facing into the new year and the way that those eight universities are pulling together to address those as I imagine they are. Yes, uh, well, Universities New Zealand, uh, which legislatively is New Zealand's Vice-Chancellor's Committee, is actually legislated. So um, unlike uh, Universities Australia, it um, doesn't um, represent as a peak body in the way Australia uh, has UA. But UNZ is actually legislated. Um, so um, the vice chancellors uh, take a significant role and work with government and the Tertiary Education Commission here to position um, the sector for the good of Aotearoa New Zealand. Um, and so you do see quite a lot of uh, uh, collaboration, cooperation um, here. Um, that you do see in Australia, but it tends to be in the subgroupings, such as Regional Universities Network or the um, Group of Eight. Um, so uh, for 2022, of course, coming off the back of two extraordinary years, uh, our mind uh, as, a, um, as Universities New Zealand is uh, absolutely focused on how can our universities help to position, to rebuild, to reimagine Aotearoa New Zealand and what role do we take as universities uh, in helping that occur. So um, New Zealand is uh, small enough um, to be extraordinarily connected. And so you can get things done in New Zealand that you may not have been able to get uh, done in Australia or within a state even. Um, so that connectivity and thinking about, um, as our Prime Minister refers to it, the team of five million, uh, and what our universities as a sector and as, you know, fundamental civic institutions in a democracy, 
how can we contribute to the reimagining or rebuilding of New Zealand as a result of um, the impact of the pandemic? So there's a lot of work being done uh, around that, a lot of thinking, a lot of work with government, uh, and also um, constantly looking for ways that we can um, minimise um, uh, duplication, but still remain autonomous institutions. And you can appreciate that is sometimes a very, very difficult tightrope to walk, but one that we are uh, determined to do because New Zealand is not a wealthy country. And so if we're going to spend money on very, very expensive machinery, research machinery, kit, facilities, etc., we would like to be joined up enough as a country such that we are not unnecessarily duplicating things. So we talk about that a lot and we action that a lot and um, we make sure that wherever we can, we're thinking about what is the right thing for our um, country to take it forward rather than what is the right thing for my institution. Just hearing the, the tone of, of your description of this, the situation there, Jan, and... Um... And the nature of the um, subject matter of the conversation around representing universities in New Zealand, it's, it sounds like it's in quite contrast to what I sense is the, as you described it, the different interest groups of universities that we have in Australia and the nature of the dialogue that has developed between the sector here and government and policymakers and even the broader community of of the Australian population. We're also seeing in Australia increasing signs of government and others encouraging our universities to differentiate, to look for alternative funding sources, to disrupt, disrupt their business models, and to, and to be more different from each other. Now, you described that you've got um, acts that require you all to fulfill similar missions. Does that mean you've not got the same pressure to find eight different universities in New Zealand and to differentiate and find new funding sources that are different from each other? I think it is a part of our experience. Uh, and um, there's no doubt that um, continued funding constraints, um, you know, bedevil the universities here and they have for, you know, for 20 years, you know, uh, and like Australia, the increase in costs um, are going up faster than the, any increase from government. But I also get a sense that the kind of New Zealand psyche almost is to say, actually, we are, um, uh, we can be innovative, and we can be creative, and we can find our way out of these difficult circumstances. So I, I see far less kind of... Um, division and conflict um, occurring. And as I say, some of the things that are occurring in Australia, and of course I watch it with great interest around things, uh, the pressure on universities for um, freedom of speech, uh, for um, those sorts of things. They, these are mandated for universities in New Zealand. So um, that, that, that we, we all do that. We all have an obligation to fulfill those um, legislative mandates. So it isn't, up for discussion here. Um, so there are some big differences in, in that sense. Uh, but we also know that we are way too small a nation uh, to be uh, fighting inside ourselves. Um, our, we, we feel that New Zealand and New Zealand universities punch well above their weight globally. And we, we feel um, very proud about that. 
and uh, we want to continue to do that. So um, it's one of the reasons that attracted me to New Zealand in the first place, that um, I think in many ways New Zealand as a society acts as a bit of a beacon of hope for um, people around the world, that you know it is possible to find the balance point across really tricky, gnarly, complex issues. And um, I, I, I really feel very privileged to be able to lean into that, to contribute to that, uh, that project that New Zealand kind of represents in my mind and that New Zealand feels very deeply about. That's um, something that everyone can rally behind and sort of there's a, be a beacon and a, a purpose yeah. that attracts a lot of us to universities, of course, doesn't it? And um, yeah. well, one area where New Zealand, I, I sense alongside Australia, has performed really well on a global stage has been traditionally the attraction of international students, which perhaps has been why we've all suffered particularly severely over the last couple of years and um, as you're looking ahead to this new year of 2022 what, I know it's very difficult to predict this week by week and day by day sometimes but what, what are you expecting the timelines to look like for the return of international students to Massey and other New Zealand universities and how is that going to impact how revenue recovery from the losses of the last two years will be um, reinstated? We are working in you know, an environment um, in a, an environment where it's almost impossible to predict some of these things. But um, we are anticipating return of international students in numbers for academic year 2023. In 2022, this year, we'll be um, introducing students in, in smaller numbers. Uh, in 2021, we introduced a small cohort of students back into the country, mostly continuing students who needed to come back into the country to complete their studies. Um, 2022, we'll see more of that, increasing numbers and so on. But a full raft of new commencing students back into New Zealand, I would not expect to see before semester one, 2023. That being said, I don't believe for New Zealand we'll ever go back to the numbers uh, that we were um, pre-COVID. Uh, I uh, sense uh, a very um, uh, deliberate shift towards um, reframing international education in New Zealand towards um, high value students who contribute to the New Zealand economy in ways that are greater than the economic return of having an international student located in country. Um, that I think will um, tend to prioritise university education because of our PhD, masters, etc. qualifications, very high value, but also in a much more controlled way rather than just kind of laissez-faire anyone who wants to apply can come. So I, I sense um, a shift in the appetite for um, volume um, and sh shifting that um, appetite towards one of value for New Zealand in a richer way than just the straight um, economic return of international students located in country. So it may never come back to the way it was in the past. And that really then calls us as universities to think about our um, current dependency on international student income as a way of um, supporting essentially what has been um, an, a chronically underfunded system um, for domestic students. And there's no doubt the lessons we've learned as we've uh, shaped 
um, our universities within the COVID environment with our borders closed, we will need to take forward. Um, and it does, it challenges us as it has a challenged people in Australia around our expenditure, what we're spending money on. And I think we need to be really clear about how we spend each dollar. So I think we will see international students back. And I particularly am passionate about getting PhD students back because they really are significant players in our research systems and um, our research endeavour. Um, but I don't expect to see international students back in large numbers. And so that calls me to make sure that I am spending the money that I get from other sources as best as I can. Really interesting that um, you've taken us there on a journey through how the international student market has changed and volume of value compared with quality might become a bigger driver in the competition in the future and how the fiscal challenges have given you a really strong focus on expenditure and costs. I guess the, um, the, the thing that hasn't been said there, and I invite you to comment on it, is the extent to which you're looking really hard beyond the short term at new forms of revenue. If we're not going to get back to the levels of revenue we have had in the past in New Zealand and Australia from international students, and if our costs can only be controlled and reduced to a certain extent, are, are there new revenue sources yeah. that you as Massey by yourself or the system in New Zealand more broadly is able to advocate for or generate or, or initiate in some way that you're exploring? Yes, um, uh, absolutely. But I, I don't write off international students completely because I think it's shifted for us. And so while I was talking about onshore international students, um, I think the market has shifted to um, much more recognition of the role of transnational education, which has been a part of uh, universities for decades. But for um, New Zealand, we haven't had a big transnational education focus right across the sector. That's been increasing, but nothing like uh, the footprint that Australian universities have. Um, for Massey, uh, we see this as one of our significant growth areas for international students. So we've just opened up our third learning centre in China and um, we have operations in Singapore and so on. But I, I think we will see a lot more of that kind of thing for New Zealand universities in the future. Away from international students, of course, uh, it comes to other sources of income and we're all working very hard on that. Um, philanthropy is um, coming into its own in New Zealand. Um, like Australia, it's a slow burn and we haven't had the tradition of giving to universities, but that's, that's changing, changing here as well as in Australia. So most universities have got quite strong philanthropic um, elements to them and that's um, helping significantly. Working with industry and partnering with industry is also um, very actively um, pursued here. And for us as well, uh, working with our um, uh, iwi Māori, our, um, our Māori tribes, our, the Indigenous uh, people of uh, New Zealand, uh, as a result of uh, settlements arising from um, uh, Waitangi tribunal settlements around the Treaty of Waitangi, the Māori economy is large and growing. Um, and so working in partnership with our, uh, our local um, uh, communities, all universities will be working um, to get outcomes that are um, beneficial there and that can add additional income. So there's a whole range of different ways that um, we are looking for additional income streams. 
Um, the economy in New Zealand is um, different. Uh, it is not as wealthy as Australia. There aren't the big, for example, mining uh, resources companies. Uh, we're very much a um, food and fibre um, uh, economy, um, and but it's changing. And New Zealand is changing to encapsulate uh, digital um, digital creativity, for example. Obviously, movies are well known, but movies, TV, all digital gaming and all that. And other high-tech industries like um, space um, exploration and uh, launching satellites and all that sort of stuff. So some really interesting changing dynamic to the economy of New Zealand. And I think... Uh, universities are well placed to work in partnership um, to drive both innovation and entrepreneurship, but also work with those sorts of industries around um, financial um, to, yeah, for, for financial benefit for the universities as well. What an interesting, um, what an interesting variety of things that are drivers for you from space exploration all the way back to where you started there with the quite different context that I sense between our two countries in that the um you know we've it's often commented on the much greater progress you've made in New Zealand towards towards reconciliation and embracing traditional owner values and interests it appears consistent with what I also sense is tell me if I've got this right a deeper and stronger commitment to equity in New Zealand society compared with Australia is that something that you've experienced and if so, is that symptomatic of a broader set of differences in the nature of culture in universities in New Zealand compared to Australia? I think I, I mentioned it earlier that I think New Zealand is the a sort of a beacon of hope um, for nations. I'd put that through the uh, on the spectrum of challenges, economic, environmental um, socially progressive and um, core fam family values, but also colonisation and indigeneity. You know, finding the balance point across all of those um, spectra is really tricky. And New Zealand um, has those tough conversations and tries, works really hard to make the right decisions in that area. So um, how we operate as a university uh, takes into account our obligations as a partner of the Treaty of Waitangi going back to 1840. Um, what we do, how we speak, um, how we have leadership, uh, how we discharge our responsibilities to um, our communities um, is always in partnership and always under the um, guidance or supported by the Treaty of Waitangi principles. So equity comes into that, um, but it's more than equity. It's taking it up to neck level um, in, in the New Zealand con context. Well, um, you've used the expression beacon of hope in uh, a couple of um, your answers to questions in this interview here today, Jan, and um, I sense you giving a very strong message of hope to your colleagues in your university and the wider New Zealand system there. Just as, as we move the interview to a close, I've, I've asked this question of every Australian Vice-Chancellor I've spoken to in the last 18 months, and you, you seem to be in a very good place yourself. Are, are you enjoying being a Vice-Chancellor at a New Zealand university as we tick over two years of living in and with a pandemic? Uh, there are days when I think, oh, my God, what am I doing? But 
the vast majority of those days, um, I uh, pinch myself and think, by God, how lucky am I to be A, living in this magnificent country and B, a leading university that can make a difference to this magnificent country. I mean, I, it's just such a privilege. So I love every, every moment of it. Um, my move to New Zealand was the best move I ever made professionally and personally. Um, I wasn't expecting the borders to close. So, of course, we have that sort of family dimension. But putting that to one side, I, I, it was the best move ever. I never imagined I'd be lucky enough to be a vice-chancellor. And being able to be a vice-chancellor at two universities um, is overwhelmingly amazing. I still think they might have made a mistake somewhere along the line. <laughs> but, I, but, yeah, no, it is when you're leading uh, good people doing their best, and you have an organisation that produces, educates the next generation of leaders, that solves the real world problems with the research that they do, the, the gnarly issues that are facing the world through the research, and we're able to contribute to a sort of a mature democracy because we're providing thought leadership and um, educating people to think about policies that government put out. There's no other job I can imagine having the privilege to be able to impact on all of those things and with a bunch of individuals who are motivated, wanting to make a difference, smart, educated. It's an unbelievable job. I am extraordinarily lucky. Well, we're very lucky to have had you come and share some of those um, wise words from two sides of... Um, the ditch that separates Australia and New Zealand and from your world experiences um, leading bodies and universities in those different settings and into the wider world. So for being a beacon of hope for us today, Jan, and for showing such humility um, and wisdom from your time, thanks very much for being a guest with us today on HeadX. Absolute pleasure, Martin. Have a great year. Well, Martin, there's Jan Thomas. Wow, what a, uh, an interesting situation she's in there, professionally and also personally. Well, she is. I mean, I will come to the personal bits, but professionally, it's, um, I'm always fascinated by the differences between New Zealand and Australia in higher education. I mean, uh, the message Jan's giving there about collaboration and acting as a, as a group of universities um, with a single mission and in support of the New Zealand economy is... It's not the same language that you get with our 40 universities in their different genres and groups. Um, and the fact that they've got the barriers of lacking self-accreditation and that being an obstacle to being more differentiated, I think is a really interesting point of contrast between what we face in Australia. There does seem to be a high level of collaboration uh, in New Zealand in general, in, across industry, and I'm, not, I'm seeing exactly the same thing here, where they do tend to band together particularly well. Um, so I think that's interesting. I also found it uh, from a leadership perspective, and you know, we're doing a lot of work in terms of cultural leadership at the moment, how, to, how do leaders lead beyond what the psychological contract or their employment you know, um, remit says? How do they consider the, uh, the employee and the, their partners in a more holistic fashion? Um, and, and I think that she's really got this nice level of um, balance, despite her own hardship and having some real difficulties where she hasn't seen a family in, in some time. She's got this level of equanimity where she remains balanced and, and particularly positive. You know, I think we positive psychology has been around for a while now and it makes a massive difference in terms of leadership. And I got a real sense of positivity from her. 
Well, I think that's a really good observation, actually, Carl. And I mean, that's going to be so needed for not only New Zealand leaders, but um, Australian leaders in higher education and those around the world. I mean, Jan herself was pointing out that the numbers of international students all of us had before 2020 and 2019, they're not coming back quickly, if at all. And our dependency on that revenue stream and responses beyond just trying to cut costs are absolutely crucial. They need to move to new business models. They need to move to new routes to revenue. And you're not going to inspire a workforce and a leadership team that's under so much pressure and has been so browbeaten for two years to do that without some really positive leadership. So I think she's got some really great leadership qualities that she's displayed in that interview that will be crucial to Massey, to New Zealand universities, and to all of our universities moving forward. Martin, let me take you off script a little bit. So, you know, we've gone a couple of years through the pandemic now. The first year essentially was all about pivoting, you know, immediate response and reaction. The second year was around new strategy. Let's stand up new strategy quickly and execute that. The, some of the insights that we saw towards the end of last year talked about the financial implications of uh, the pandemic on universities, and it seemed to be not quite as dire as we initially suspected. So is there a level, do you think there is still a level of complacency in leadership across higher education sector because they've seen that, wow, it actually wasn't didn't hit our bottom line as hard as we thought it was going to? Or, we, yes, we're now seeing international students coming back, so maybe the burning platform's not as hot as it once was? What's your feeling there? I think you're really hitting the nail on the head there, Carl. I I think there is a level of, for a brief while there, that looked like there was a burning platform that seems to have have not been the springboard to radical change that many were seeing at the time. I think there is a level of of comfort in finding that having ridden through the short-term storm, maybe we can hope to get through all of this without doing much more. But I, I, I'm, I'm absolutely sure there's an elephant in the room here of a bigger, longer-term change in terms of what students expect, what our staff expect, what competitors are doing into this marketplace and how they'll be perceiving it. And I think the really far-sighted leader is going to need to think much more radically and in a much more innovative and creative way about how their context is going to give them opportunities to innovate, to reinvent, to reimagine, to really get on with what the new models will be in terms of hybrid and to reflect on their particular opportunities. I mean, Jan, from a Massey perspective, was talking about some interesting things there with the Maori economy and the emergence of digital creative industries and space industries. Who'd have thought that for a a New Zealand university? And, and each of them, with, she, she made reference to transnational education and online opportunities too. I think the great leaders for this next phase will be those that are least complacent, most positive and most creative about seeing some radical opportunities for doing things differently. And we have been lamenting perhaps the relative lack of action for a couple of years. I think now is the time when we should expect to see some some action beyond hope to create a better future. Yeah, terrific. I think one of the ways that that has happened in other sectors, and I again want to reflect into this sector, is uh, traditionally the role of the CEO or the vice chancellor, I imagine, in this situation has been a very lonely role where they have a very large responsibility and most of their day is taken up with executing elements to make sure they're, they're fulfilling requirements. However, Um, collaborating with other leaders and other CEOs and finding partners to help try 
um, and explore new ways of doing things has been quite difficult for a lot of leaders traditionally. That's not the case now outside of this sector. So um, executive leadership groups, uh, CEO forums, uh, panel discussions, networking. There's been a time in the last 18 months where I feel that a lot of CEOs have recognized that maybe I can't go this alone and there is something around wisdom of crowds that I can benefit from having a relationship and building my network and actually helping form strategy and shaping decisions, um, not just in isolation. So is that the case in higher education or are we still seeing you know, siloed mentality? Well, um, the wisdom of crowds is an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, Jan was reflecting there on the the great work that she's undertaking amongst her fellow vice-chancellors of New Zealand universities of collaborating and forming common relationships with government and um, the sector. But what you're painting a picture of there is the different wisdom that can come with getting into a, a diverse crowd, a crowd of CEOs of people beyond universities and new partners. Um, I, I, I think that the times are calling for a much better external perspective and much better capability of, of networking and conversing with people from more diverse fields and organizations that can help bring about change in the sector rather than just being, you know, the champion of the, the group of like-minded vice-chancellors. And um, how you do that in the circumstances that we've got. I mean, so much of, of a vice-chancellor and a senior university's executive's diary, I know only too well because it was my life for so long, is taken up by responsibilities and commitments of DVCs groups for this and deans groups for that and Universities Australia Conference for this and networks for that and, and submissions for government reports and, and consultations on this. Not enough of it is left as space for the more inventive conversation with a tech company or conversation with a, you know, the, the CEO of LinkedIn about the future of work or opportunities with the local um, major employer to really explore what the future looks like and what new revenue streams will, will, will be. And hoping along with your current peers is one way of look, moving forward. Making it happen with new partners is quite a different way forward. I think we all will need more of the latter. It's almost groupthink versus wisdom of crowds, isn't it? That's a good way of describing that. I mean, I think some people might see that those two things are the same thing. And I think what you're, you're drawing attention to and what I'm trying to articulate is the fact that they can be very different things. And I think these times cause, call for us to see the difference between them more starkly than we ever have before. I think one of the things we're doing that will help that is our execution of our new event series, HeadX Live. Yeah, it's going to be great, Carl. I mean, I, I think to, to build upon some of the experience and expertise that you've had working for Channel 9 and Power Ed around using technology to get messages out to leaders in different sectors, the chance for us to do that in our first event in this month in, on February the 24th with all nine Queensland universities signed up and us to have various vice-chancellors join many of their emerging and current leaders and talk about culture and talk about the issue of gender equity and its effects and links with culture and how that can drive superior performance for the sector 
It's going to be a really important topic, and I'm greatly looking forward to it and the other sessions that we'll have as we explore different ways of the sector moving forward. Mm. The testing that we uh, that we conducted around live events and online events has been fascinating too in terms of making the decision to what was the forum and medium we were going to use here. So this idea of having a studio-based network quality interview panel with decision makers around key issues, we found very, very high engagement with that as compared to um, a webinar, for instance, or a, um, a even some live events. So it should be a really great event. I'm looking forward to tackling you know, a lot of the things that are going to be front of mind for most leaders this year. Well, I think it's um, something that we're, we're probably all seeing. The universities involved us and our partners on it, um, OES, who have come on board as a series sponsor. We're all seeing it as an opportunity of, there is a new, a new normal there. There is a new model of hybrid ways of doing things. And to model the behavior of how to address that by getting together with leaders of the sector, pioneers in online learning, and ourselves as, as agents for change in the industry at HEDEX to model the behavior of how to address topics for diverse and live audiences using technology. It's about part of that ma mantra of ours about this being the year to make things happen rather than hope they get better. Absolutely. And that's all we have time for on this episode of HEDEX. Thanks, Martin.